Welcome to Culture Matters, my podcast where we dive into the many facets of organizational culture. I am your host, Subhu Kalpati. I am a talent, leadership and organizational development professional. My guest today is Melanie Martinelli, co-founder and director at The Learning Gym. She's a specialist in learning solutions and is passionate about researching and implementing the latest and most relevant trends in the learning industry. Melanie assists both individuals and organizations in building memorable learning experiences linked to performance. In this episode, we discuss what it takes to build a learning culture, the levers of learning transfer effectiveness, and measurement techniques that actually work. Melanie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Subhu. My pleasure. Um, so, Melanie, before we before you kick this off, um, I'm curious to know a little bit about uh, you and your career um, thus far. You've you've had a very interesting uh, life and career trajectory, and um, you know, could you uh, could you walk us through a little bit about where you started? I know you also have an India connection, um, right? So, how did you how did you land up um, as as the co-founder of the Learning Gym where you are today? Uh, how did it how did it all come to be? Sure. Well, I mean, I know this is a podcast, so people are not going to be able to see us on video, but you mm. can. You see the Nataraj behind me. I can, yes. So straight away, you can yeah. see the India connection. Actually, all the furniture behind me is from India. Yeah. So I did spend 18 years in India and we'll start straight away there because that's actually where my career started. Mm-hmm. I uh, studied international business management with a focus on finance and cultural differences. Mm-hmm. And at the end of my studies, I got an opportunity to go to India to do further research on how cultural differences might impact offshore projects. And so I was I went to India for a duration of four months initially planned and four months became 18 years. Wow. So you kind of wonder what happened. And so in a nutshell, my career was I did research on cultural differences, got a job offer in a local IT company. Uh, for those who are familiar with Bangalore at the Silkport Junction. Uh, mm. um, and so I worked as the head of sales and account management for Europe. And as I was, you know, getting offshore projects, I supported those uh, project teams from a cultural perspective, making sure that the cultural differences that existed between Indian engineers and European engineers, because that's what I focused on, mm-hmm. were bridged effectively and the benefits of offshore collaborations, you know, were happening. Mm. And somehow that's actually how I moved into training. So it was a kind of an accident, you know, I was more into sales, but then I started coaching, supporting, mentoring different project teams. And so then I had the appetite to learn more about how do you do that? I mean, yeah, I felt comfortable talking in front of people and all of this, but learning, training, coaching is more than just talking. So I started upskilling myself in all kinds of areas in the L&D field. Mm -hmm. And after about three years, realized I really want to do that. I don't want to do the sales anymore. Uh, I want to really focus on uh, the training learning aspect. And so I started my first business. Uh, Of course, I still had to do sales because when you have your own business, you have to do sales. (laughs) But I started a business that mainly focused on offering intercultural trainings for IT projects. It was actually called Let's Bridge It or Let's Bridge IT. That quickly soon after got merged with a few colleagues into a slightly bigger organization that's still around today and does wonderful work called C2C Organizational Development. And I think you might even know some of my ex-colleagues, which we grew into a beautiful OD uh, company uh, with a focus on leadership programs, but also, um, you know, soft skill, behavioral skills uh, training and 
there, though, again, kind of going back to my initial passion for, you know, finding out how cultural differences impact offshore projects, I started kind of looking into uh, how trainings can be made more effective. Mm-hmm. We were doing all these programs and I could see again my finance hats kind of coming back saying, we are offering all these trainings, but are they really providing, you know, the right impact and desired result? And so I started, again, investing a lot of upskilling around, for example, the Kirkpatrick model and transfer and other things. And then at one point realized I wanted to do that full time. I only wanted to focus on supporting others and ensuring that their learning initiatives are impactful. And so I kind of left C2C and together with Chilpa, was also part of C2C, we started the learning gym with the idea of kind of creating the space for learning professionals to come together and, uh, yeah, build learning muscles in the field of design, facilitation, you know, measurement, making sure what we offer is actually effective and creating the desired results. Very fascinating. Thanks for sharing that, That's- Melanie. That's a, I mean, the first thought that came to mind was, you know, finance and um, culture, right? That, that's a very interesting combination to to specialize yeah. in. Um, curious, just as a follow-up question, how did you how did you choose these two? Uh, and what, what was the decision-making process in your mind when you chose these two? I actually have to be very honest. I didn't really choose it. It okay. was, I actually would have to ask the, the dean of the university back then because they kind of put the focus on that. Oh. And, you know... It's we had other classes as well, like marketing and HR, your typical programs that you have in a, you know, in a course on business administration. But it just happened that there was quite a lot of focus on finance mm-hmm. and a lot of focus on culture because I graduated in 2004. And so, I mean, globalization has been around for longer, yeah. but it was a time where globalization was kind of developing at a much faster pace. And so I think at the university where I was, it became a key interest for them to say, we want to, you know, turn out students that have relevant skills for today's world. And that seems to be around culture as well. So not just the typical finance business skills, but that cultural understanding that is required to see succeed in a global world. And I just found it fascinating. And yeah. uh but it's really accompanied me through my career because in everything I do, I always have this mindset of what might be cultural implications. You know, is this going to work everywhere? Is there something we need to consider? But also financially, does this make sense? You know, what are we really trying to achieve? And so I think that's really kind of become uh, one of the key factors in the way I work. Very interesting. And I think it's it's held you in good stead because you are in a way working. You're wearing your finance hat and your you know intercultural hat <laughs> when you when you work uh, today as well, right? So I think it's it's probably held you in good stead. And I Great. even need it in my marriage. No, I'm married to an Indian, <laughs> so like yeah. the financial aspect is a different one there. But I mean, in terms of the cultural understanding, even in our little family, we right. experience that day in and day out. Right, right. So many multiple facets of of yeah. that coming through. Yeah. Uh, wonderful. Um, so, uh, follow-up question there, Melanie, is that you know you've um, you've obviously been working in the field of um, learning and development, advising yeah. all kinds of clients on design delivery, uh, transfer effectiveness, and so on. Um, if I were to ask you, have you had any big aha moments or big insights uh, along the way, right? That you've that you may have um, taken away uh, through all these years. If you were to share maybe one or two key highlights. 
There's actually kind of been a few, and you know, just earlier today, I was uh, hosting a webinar around uh, training effectiveness and evaluation, and it reminded me again of a few of those ahas. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm not sure whether you call it aha, but also more key learnings. And I think maybe also not mistakes, but yeah, to a certain extent, mistakes that I've made in my career and where I see a lot of us struggling with in the industry as we're kind of trying to do meaningful work. And I think what you find very often in the space of learning and development is a lot of very passionate people. Not that you don't have passionate people in other professions, but somehow as trainers, as designers, there's usually a lot of passion for what we do, but that passion sometimes becomes our biggest enemy in uh, when we have to design solutions for our clients because it kind of makes us blind. Mm. And so I think one thing that I realized, and I did that myself, is you know when clients came to us with a certain problem statement, we were always very quick to jump to a solution. Oh yeah, we've seen this before. We know right. what you need. Oh, you have an issue with, uh, you know, your India team working with your Swiss team. Uh, I know exactly what's going on. Here's the solution. And I think this, you know, again, putting on the finance hat is actually the number one mistake we make if we want to create sustainable, uh, you know, learning that results in transfer and effectiveness because we are operating from incomplete data. We are making assumptions that we know what the problem is. And yes, we have a ready-made course and we launch it instead of stepping back. And we discussed it at length this morning in the panel as well, just asking, why is this training needed? You know, and is even training needed? Maybe training is not even, you know, the solution. Mm. What are we observing, you know, at work that makes us say something needs to change? What are we hoping to achieve? And I think this is something I realized that very often is really the root cause of so many yeah, failed initiatives that I've seen and even myself been part of, where you think you have a great training and yes, people are happy after it. But it's not about happiness in the end. If you do training, it's about creating learning, impacting performance, you know, having a positive impact on the business. And that cannot happen like that. So don't jump the gun too soon. Give it some time to do your analysis well before yeah. you before you get yeah. to training. Yeah. Yeah. And also I think we sometimes become very passionate. We have so many jargons. I mean, of course, every profession does, you know, mm. like we have all these jargons in our L and D community where we talk about certain facilitation techniques. So yeah, we could do. I think we we are very passionate to think about tools and techniques very fast versus kind of elevating the conversation to what are we really trying to achieve and Mm. then really making a conscious decision, what's the best way to get there? I'm going to move on to my next question, um, which is, uh, I'd love to get your view on um, what constitutes a learning culture, right? So we were talking about culture. um, And, um, you know, how can leaders effectively institutionalize learning? That's that's a struggle that I'm sure that you've also seen, Mm. um, is that learning happens in pockets, but it doesn't happen in others. Um, Any any insights or examples to share Mm. there? I mean, I think, you know, just building on what we discussed in the previous question, I think part of the answer lies there. Mm. Um, when you kind of just look at training or learning as an event where, yeah, you do a training session here, another session here, another one here, you're not really, really creating a learning culture. Mm. You're just creating an events culture, if I may invent that, you right. know, that term. Right. You're just kind of doing that, as you said, pockets of, uh, of, 
learning or initiatives that you're hoping are going to result in some in some change or benefit and i think there's a lot of things required to you know to create a learning culture but for me it's a lot more than just training I think there's training is such a small part mm. in anything. It's about, you know, the environment we create. Is it, you know, fostering an open environment where people can have honest conversations with each other because we can learn through conversations? Is it an environment where we can make mistakes because we learn through mistakes? Um, is it okay for us to try out things? You know, I mean, there's clients I've worked with where there's a lot of, there's very little formal training happening. Most of the learning happens on the job. Mm. They have these little labs. They have these learning cafe sessions where different topics are being picked up. So I think, you know, without giving a formal definition of what a learning culture is, because there's others out there much more of an expert on it. Mm -hmm. For me, it's, it's about when learning is embedded in our everyday doing right. and not just kept as this separate event that now let me block some time to attend this two-hour session and then yeah. I've done some learning. Uh, because that actually then also, you know, leads to the mistakes of why or the, the challenges why a lot of money that gets invested in training doesn't result in the desired change is because it's not supported afterwards. People attend the training kind of in isolation, then they come back into their work environment, and there are no processes or systems to support the application. And I think, you know, for leaders, for managers to come back to your second part of the questions, you know, what can we do to effectively institutionalize learning? It is about, yeah, putting also these systems and processes in place that create space for learning to happen at any moment, be it in a meeting where maybe we have a reflection round, you know, be it that we have these, uh, when we're working on a project, we have these uh, get-togethers where we think about what's working, what isn't working, and mm. we have these, yeah, not just these formal training events in place, but learning is kind of, you know, there around us. Mm. It's actually interesting, you know, just before we got on this call, I was browsing on LinkedIn and I found this really interesting post around we need learnfluencers instead of influencers, learnfluencers in companies, uh, mm. which means, you know, people that go through the world with open eyes to collect inputs, but then afterwards share those inputs with the people around them that create space for these inputs to get discussed, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that inspire others to try out things, you know, that, that are willing to take the risk to maybe try out something, even if it's hard and fail and learn from it, that kind of walk the talk in, uh, yeah, in just looking for new ways of doing things. And I found that a very interesting concept. I had never heard it. Yeah. And, you know, that it's about maybe organizing learning festivals, uh, you know, exchange formats that are accessible, easy accessible, that can easily be built in into our everyday. Because, you know, eight hours of training, and of course now virtual, we kind of hope did move a little bit away from that. But yeah. I see so much going back to pre-COVID. Again, these eight, two-day, three-day, mm. you know, learning sessions. That's not possible, depending on what kind of jobs you're in. Think about someone in a call center. Taking them out for three days, that's a lot. Mm. There's also this risk of having a total overload afterwards of learning. 
why not finding these simple formats, you know, where we can focus on a small thing that helps us do our job? I think that for me is a learning culture where there's a lot more of these informal exchange forums where we can learn together versus mm. the formal ones. And I'm saying that as a training provider, but right. I think that there's room for that. But to be a true learning organization, it requires so much more. Right. I love the idea of um, having, you know, a reflection time baked in into a meeting, yeah. for example, right? Yeah. That you were talking about, which just helps people to reflect on what they learned from that particular meeting, for yeah. example. And it gets deeply embedded. I, I love that. Um, so, yeah, making the space, uh, carving out time to do it in your day-to-day vis-a-vis only not looking at formal learning events, um, essentially, yeah. is, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, making it available. I mean, it could be, it's just these exchanges, you know, learning can happen anywhere over lunch in a conversation or, yeah, just kind of talking about what we learn, what we need to do our job better. That, for me, is also part of a learning culture. Uh, another related topic, and I'm sure you've you've uh, researched on this and worked on this, uh, you know, throughout your uh, career and also now with the learning gym, which is this concept of ROI of of mm. learning, right? How do we how do we really focus on that? And the associated concept of, of course, transfer and transfer effectiveness. Um, could you talk a little bit about these two concepts? And I know we 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 also open saying we we speak too much jargon as learning professionals, yeah. But I think these two are important because that's that's where you see the results of learning, right? So therefore, um, if you can throw some light on these two concepts, I think it'll be nice. And I think you know. Talking jargon, you know, when you're amongst peers is absolutely okay. (laughs) But I think it's especially when we speak to the business who is ultimately our client. Mm. When we design learning interventions, we want to be a little bit more careful about using some of this jargon and actually speaking a little bit more the language of the business. So, yeah. So, I mean, ROI is indeed, you know, a very important concept um, that you know, of course, we, we've been exposed to quite a bit. Actually, at the Learning Gym and, you know, through our association with the Kirkpatrick Partners, we kind of rather call it return on expectations than return on investment. And it kind of goes back to a fundamental belief. Uh, it's kind of connected to what I said is one of my key observations in terms of what we sometimes struggle with. Return on expectations means that we really partner with our business to find out What's the why behind a request? So when someone is coming to us and says, you know, we'd like a um, a cross-cultural training. Right. Okay. Why is that needed? What is happening in the business that has triggered this need? Mm-hmm. What are we trying to achieve or what are we hoping to achieve? So for me, return on investment is a little bit, you know, only look, even though I have a finance background, only looking at the financials, but the expectation might be, also different. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's about maybe reducing nutrition rate. Maybe it's about improving customer satisfaction. Of course, ultimately, this will have a financial benefit if you're working in a profit-oriented organization. But I think talking about return on expectation allows us to really engage with the business at a much deeper level to understand their context, what matters to them, what are the metrics they are paying attention to, uh, what is happening today that they would like to see differently in the future what is not happening that they like to address through a you know a learning intervention 
And so that's the return on expectation, really jointly agreeing, mm. why are we doing this intervention? What are we hoping to achieve? Mm. And that's what I meant with you. You're not just jumping in and say, okay, I have a super program two days. No, let me first understand what's the destination we are trying to reach, that GPS location. And now let's talk about how we will get there versus I know how we will get there, but I actually don't even know where we're going, right. <laughs> which is sometimes when we just come with the training design. Right. And yeah, transfer is very much connected to that because when you start, or at least in my case, um, do the work with uh, Kirkpatrick's, I started getting involved in a lot of uh projects where we did impact studies mm -hmm. or where we did, of course, try to evaluate the effectiveness of a training in intervention, whether the RO, the return on expectation was indeed met. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, especially in the early days, we had to realize that that wasn't the case. And as we kind of then started digging deeper, we realized we are not the only ones. There's loads of interesting research by Professor Brinkerhoff, but also afterwards by Ina Weinbauer-Heidel that I work closely with. We've all done fascinating research on why is it that very often, even though a training might initially get very good feedback, participants were happy and all of that, why doesn't it actually translate into application on the job? And have a positive impact on that return on expectations. And that's where the concept of um, transfer and transfer effectiveness kind of came in, that application of learning requires more than just training. And that's, again, right. where we are with the learning culture. Right. It requires the systems, the processes on the job to support the application of that newly acquired knowledge. Right. Absolutely. In fact, when I was, um, you know, reading through the transfer effectiveness literature, mm -hmm. uh, I, I couldn't help but recognize how closely it fits with the concept of driving a learning culture. If you're yeah, doing some of absolutely. those yeah, effectiveness levers well, then you know that you're working towards setting up uh, a learning culture for the organization, which, yeah. which therefore brings me to my next question, um, Melanie, which is that, you know, what are some of the levers of transfer effectiveness, uh, as according to research by Dr. Rina uh, Weinbau Heidel? And um, you know, could you talk through some of those, the, the key ones, yeah. according to yeah. you? Yeah. yeah, yeah, because if not, we're going to be here for a couple of hours yeah. because there's actually, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, in her research, <laughs> she actually identified 12 key levers that have a very important impact on transfer, but most importantly, also levers that you and I as learning professionals can actually influence. And she categorized them in three major areas. And one is the participants themselves. So there are certain factors linked to the participants, such as, you know, the learner's motivation to learn, their volition, uh, which means kind of also, you know, do they have the energy to kind of implement it, their commitment in that sense, but also their confidence, what she calls self-efficacy, you know, do they have the confidence to apply? Because sometimes we get knowledge in a training, mm. but we are kind of hesitant to apply it afterwards because, you know, change is hard, you know, we might need a little bit of hand-holding. Then there's a lot of levers in the training design which I think are, you know, people who work in training design get the most excited about because they are in our direct control. Mm. And those are things like clarity on expectation. But it's also about relevance. Like there's a massive correlation between when something is relevant to us, there's a much higher likelihood to apply it. But also when the case studies we use, you know, mm. in a training, the role plays, the examples are relevant to my context, it helps the learning and the transfer. Active uh, practice, 
the more actively I learn, it's not about reading books is nice, but it's just knowledge. If I want to build the skills that can mm-hmm. ultimately lead to transfer, it's about practice, ongoing practice. And also, interestingly, planning. A big mistake that very often happens, and I'm sure any trainer listening to this has probably been in this situation, where you go to a training and then comes the famous kind of action planning at the end. But you're kind of running out of time, you know, things are getting tight. You say, well, you know, just take a moment afterwards to review everything. Mm. Or you ask people at the end of a program saying, so what's been some of your key highlights and what are you going to do differently as a result? And people tell you, well, there was so much. There's so much. I don't know. I first need to review all of this. Well, that's when we've lost. That's when transfer is gone for a toss. Mm. Because people go back to their everyday job. They're not going to have the time to review everything. So unless people leave the room with very concrete baby steps of what they are actually implementing, transfer is probably not going to happen. And then there's a third category, and that's actually the one that's probably the closest link to what you just said before, the learning culture. It's the leaders in the organization. Support from peers, support from supervisors, direct supervisors, line managers have a massive impact on whether we apply what we've learned. But also our personal transfer capacity, are we given the opportunity, are we given the time, the resources to actually apply? And also um, expectations in the organization. Mm. And that's actually very closely linked to culture. You know, is the organization just saying transfer is important? Or is it actually also doing things that signal that transfer is important? Two things come to mind while I was listening to you, Melanie. One is that how important, especially with respect to the second lever, uh, how Mm -hmm. important it is to uh, design your program in a way that, you know, you are designing for transfer effectiveness, uh, right? And we we usually think about these things post facto after you've, you know, delivered and it's too late, like you said, if you only have five minutes for action planning, you've, you've already yeah. lost it. So therefore, you need to think about this at the design phase and make sure that you yeah. know, uh, you have those levers built and into the design itself. That is one. Yeah. The other point is, uh, you know, that I want to pick up on a little more is the, the culture aspect of it that you mentioned, which is the third lever, which is what is the organization doing uh, to mm-hmm. make sure that learning is, is BAU after the learning event has occurred, so yeah. to speak. Right. So if you can talk about those signals that you just touched yeah. upon right now, right? So what are what are some strong signals that that an organization can give to its learners saying that, hey, look, we are serious about learning here and therefore we are not going to let you off the hook just because you've you've gone through a program. What is it yeah. that organizations can do to build that and, and ingrain that within the culture? That's a great question. It's actually, you know, I it, it's something we've been discussing quite a bit with mm-hmm. Ina lately as well. And we wrote a small blog about it as well. I did a small session a couple of weeks ago, months ago uh, at a conference. And it's actually a lot of really small things. And what it really came back to is we realized it's very rare that you will find an organization that says, I don't care about transfer. Right. That does, you know, they all say, of course, we want transfer. That's why we spend all this money on training. But there's a lot of unconscious actions that organizations take that somehow have just become the norm in the industry that actually signal something very different. I'll give you a simple example. Mm. Certificates. For example, a certificate of attendance. Yeah, people attend a two-day program and get a certificate of attendance. Mm. Sounds nice. And of course, you know, people are proud to then showcase their certificate. You get some happy faces and some, uh, you know, nice photos. But what's the actual message behind that? The message behind the certificate of attendance is what matters is that you attend. Right. I mean, you're not saying I don't care about the rest, but that's the 
unspoken signal that you're sending. Whereas, you know, a very simple change to that, if you really want to create a more sustainable learning culture that fosters, supports transfer is, why not do a certificate for a successful completion of a project, an application? Mm. So, you know, once you've demonstrated yeah, that you actually applied the learning, you get the certificate. Right. I'll give you a fascinating example of um, a client I worked with that when we spoke about that, they took a really cool um, action. Uh, and we spoke about that in the middle of them running a nine-month leadership program. And the idea was that at the end of the nine months, you know, people get a certificate of attendance because, right. yeah, hey, they invested nine months, you know, a lot of learning, a lot of time. And then what they did is they changed that. What they did is they actually involved and asked themselves, who are the best people to actually tell us whether the leaders applied the learning? Mm. It's their employees. It's their subordinates. And so they actually informed the subordinates to pay attention to once their leaders come back to what is expected of them. And when they feel their leaders are demonstrating those behaviors, they can give them the certificate. Wow. And so that just created such a different, you know, environment and a signal that truly, you know, said, hey, we don't, it's not just about you attending nine months. Mm. It's about you really implementing what you learned and we're going to hold you accountable for it. And you actually are doing this. I mean, you're going to a leadership program because we want you to be a better leader. Mm. And who is better equipped to judge that than the people that are working with you? So that's a very simple one. You know, another signal is that you see a lot of companies uh, making training compulsory. Now, I'm not saying don't make it compulsory. That's not the problem with the signal. But they're making the training compulsory. And then there's optional transfer activities. But they are not booked into the calendar. So like, you know, there are transfer cafes. There's maybe implementation sessions or there's follow-up coaching. But that's kind of you attend if you can. So again, what's the signal being sent? It's important to attend the training. Afterwards, it doesn't matter so much. Mm. So again, treating, you know, transfer interventions with the same rigor as the training is again a way to change that. Surveys, I'm sure you have you must have filled out, you know, uh, training surveys yeah. at the end of a program. And what you see in a lot of those surveys is a lot of questions around how satisfied were you with the training. Yeah. yeah. And now again, what's the signal there when we are asking a question about whether you were satisfied? What matters to me is that you're satisfied. Mm. Now, again, I'm not saying you don't want your people to be satisfied, but satisfaction, there's an, enough data to show it doesn't have a direct impact on your transfer ability afterwards. Whereas we know relevance does. When, you know, so asking people, you know, whether you found the program relevant and useful, that's already a step into the right direction. But even maybe adding questions around transfer to say, how confident are you to apply what you've learned? What support might you need to apply it? That's where you're sending a signal to your participant. I care about what Mm. comes after the training and Mm. not just what happened during the training. Yeah, yeah. You need to flip the flip the survey script, so to speak, right? And yeah. and not let it be about the program itself, but think about yeah. what happens next. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Because that's when you are sending a signal, that's important to me. I care about it. Yeah. And see, a lot of these things are just they've been around. We've we've always done it that way. You yeah. know, like certificates of attendance have been around, especially in India. Mm. 
certificates of participation are a very big thing, you know, and very often, you know, there's a ceremony around it. Maybe a senior leader comes in and distributes it. There's photos taken. So I understand culturally it's very important but if we really want to see application, there's a little bit of a danger zone here. Mm. Bears, we might just want to postpone that. And once they really have implemented it, then we want to call the senior leader to distribute the you know, certificate of implementation, for example. Yeah, yeah. Which is why I liked your, your first example of actually taking feedback from employees and then, you know, giving the certificates yeah. much later to yeah. the leaders yeah. to see that, you know, you've, you've actually implemented some of what you've learned. Yeah, in the absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, those are just a few examples, you know, but others are really also about, you know, a key thing is getting the supervisors involved. You know, Mm -hmm. there's enough Mm -hmm. research that clearly tells us, you know, creating a learning culture and uh, creating a culture where transfer gets applied cannot be left to Mm L&D. There's only a small part we can do. We can be the stepping stone. We can initiate it. Yeah. But afterwards, we are not there every day when people are applying. So also thinking about how to get the supervisors on board. What is it that they need to actually do their job? It's not about what we expect of them. It's also what they need from us. You know, if we want them to do coaching or provide feedback to their employees, what is it that we might need to give them that they can actually do that? That's also very, very important. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And also this other aspect that you touched upon, which is your other processes within the organization yeah. also need to be tuned with um, with learning because, uh, you know, learning is usually seen as a nice to have, whereas other processes yeah. like performance and, you know, um, payroll and rewards are seen as must haves. But yeah. if, if these if these processes don't talk to each other and if there's not enough alignment, then it becomes very difficult to sustain the learning culture yeah. that you're trying to build. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you an example that just popped up and you said about rewards. You know, there was an organization we worked with that was working very hard in creating, uh, transforming their sales culture mm-hmm. from a culture where everyone was just focused on selling their product that they're responsible for to a more cross-selling approach. Right. So that if I'm in a meeting with a client, I'm not just focusing on pushing my product, mm-hmm. but if I hear an opportunity, I'm trying to listen for opportunities to maybe get the product of a colleague in. Huh? And so they did all these trainings around cross-selling and the benefits and how to do it. But And then after three months, we came in and we were asked to kind of do a little bit of an analysis. Has anything changed? And none of the metrics have improved. Yeah, It was actually almost the opposite. We saw less of cross-selling than even before the training. Oh. And so we did some focus groups and we, uh, you know, we spoke you know, to the participants and they said, well, look, I get it. I understand that cross-selling is important for the organization, but what about me? My bonus is only linked to my product. Right. So why would I push the product of my colleague? I'm not going to get anything there. I'm actually losing. Yeah. And that's a beautiful example where you have the process, the system, the reward system is not aligned. Mm. It's not supporting the desired behavior that you want to see. Yeah. And so unless you change that, you can keep training, 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 and but it's not going to change because it's not that people don't know how to do it. They don't want to do it mm. because they don't see a benefit in it. Yeah. Actually, yeah. if they would do it, they think they are, you know, it's counterproductive for themselves because they're getting less of a bonus. So unless you change the bonus system there, mm. it's not going to change. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a great example. Thanks, uh, Melanie. Um, I, I want to segue um, and go a little deeper into this concept of measurement. 
mm-hmm. um, right? Um, and uh, do you espouse to any kind of measurement techniques that can truly help organizations, you know, capture the efficacy of whatever it is that they're trying mm-hmm. to build through these uh, learning initiatives? Anything that you've seen that has uh, stuck out for you? Yes, I mean, as I mentioned briefly before, we mainly, you know, I mean, we use not mainly, we do <laughs> use the uh, Kirkpatrick, Kirkpatrick model. Uh, right. Um, that's kind of what we are inspired by. Uh, and kind of, you know, it's not just about a technique. It's the first one is an approach and a mindset that you adopt. And then, of course, afterwards, the specific tools you can use. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if I look at both of these sites, for, for us, the Kirkpatrick model means that before we roll out any training intervention, because measurement doesn't happen after the training. Of course, yes, it does. Yes, you're going to start collecting data afterwards. Mm. But planning the measurement strategy has to happen before. And it actually starts with the needs analysis of clarifying why is an intervention needed? What is Mm. that return on expectation? Mm. And once we have defined that return on expectation, we want to ask ourselves, how do we know we're on track? So we like to what we call leading indicators. They're a little bit like milestones, short-term goals that you want to achieve. Think about running a marathon. You know, uh, maybe you have the ultimate goal to run the marathon in less than three hours. Mm -hmm. How will you know that you achieved it is, well, only when you cross the finish line, but then it's too late to adjust. Right. So what you typically do as a runner, you probably have a goal for five kilometers, for 10 kilometers, 15, that you can monitor to see whether you need to adjust your pace. The same is with training. So if we are, let's say, trying to increase uh, ultimately our customer satisfaction, uh, because we realize that our you know customer support team is is getting a lot of complaints, customer unhappy or unhappy with how their queries are being treated. Well, then maybe more short-term observations that we can use to kind of measure whether the training was effective is to see whether the number of complaints is going down. Right. You know, so on the more short term. So defining and what's really important there is we don't want to invent metrics. We want to use the ones the business is anyway already looking at. Mm. The ones that probably prompted them to say we need a training intervention because some of those some of the data points they're looking at that matter to them are not at a satisfying level. Right. And so, you know, so that's that's the key. And so there we typically work very closely with the business. Uh, we use dashboards to kind of, you know, monitor the evolution of some of these leading indicators. When it comes to the more, you know, classical, you know, kind of measurements where we try and see, you know, has the training laid a good foundation for transfer to take place Mm -hmm. we mainly operate with surveys but it's just as i said before surveys that go beyond the typical happy sheet we don't just want to have these questions around were you satisfied but a survey that allows us to gather meaningful data um that uh, includes questions like, you know, the confidence level for the learners to apply the learning, um, the barriers that they might see in it. Yeah. Uh, and again, th- that we typically gather through surveys immediately after the training. And then kind of maybe we do another round after 30 or 60 days mm-hmm. to kind of see where we are standing now. Hmm. afterwards you know another and that's of course very often time consuming and that's when it comes back again it's so important to have partnerships with the business because you as L&D can't do it all alone that's again very in the topic of a learning culture everyone needs to play their role in it mm-hmm. uh in order who is the best person to know whether the behavior that you tried to 
influence is actually taking place is the people that work with you. So sometimes if it's in customer service, maybe it's gathering customer feedback. Do they actually observe a change in the behavior of the customer agent? That's where the concept of mystery shoppers comes from, for example. If it's behavior that the supervisor can see every day, maybe the supervisors are being interviewed and asked. Maybe it's the colleagues being asked. So I think there's not one size that fits all. It always goes back to what are we trying to achieve mm-hmm. and how, you know, what will tell us whether we're on the right track. Right. But very short answer. It's a mix between surveys, focus groups, mm-hmm. and uh, paying attention to business relevant metrics that we are trying to positively influence through the training intervention. Got it. Yeah, and I think those uh, effectively touch across all levels of of the Kirkpatrick model also, because we're also talking about behavior results and also not designing surveys that, uh, you know, that we, like you said, the the happy sheet, not just looking at what uh, what makes people happy, but also go to results even through the survey itself, I think. Exactly. uh, Yeah. I mean, there's a simple question you can ask, you know, having attended this program, which impact do you think it's going to have in your job? open-ended or you can ask them do you think by having attended this program you know you will see a positive impact on certain business metrics now that's not proof yet but that's a predictive you know way of finding out did they actually see the connection because if everyone says i don't think that's going to help with any of this i don't think it's going to have a positive impact on the way i handle my customers or my team well then we might have to go back to the drawing board and find out why because if that if that was our goal and no one thinks it's going to happen, then we should not wait for 60 days. Then we should probably correct it right there. Yeah. Um, Melanie, we have come towards the end of our discussion, but before, before we, before we close, there's one, uh, you know, a special round that I do with all my guests, which is the rapid fire round, um, where, uh, you know, I just ask you a, a word or a phrase and you say the first thing that comes to mind. Um, right. Okay. So uh, are you, do are I you... say a word or I say a sentence or? Yeah, it's up to you. You can say okay. a word, sentence, whatever it is that you want to. Uh, <laughs> feel free okay. to follow it up with a clarifying comment if you want. That's totally up okay. To you. But the only rule is we'll, we'll go fast. So it, it's a okay. rapid fire. I'll try. <laughs> so I'm sweating. Thing, yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's let's try this, Melanie. Um, are you ready? Should we go? Yes. Okay. Ready. Learning. Uh, not effective most of the time, because we don't focus on transfer. So you over-focus on learning. That's the first thing. <laughs> okay, good. Thanks for the clarification there, because I was wondering what, <laughs> what that's about. All right. Uh, learning events. Oh, I hate them. Turn them into learning journeys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we know why that is now. Uh, business impact. Absolutely necessary. Okay. And possible to demonstrate if you partner with the business early on. Wonderful. Learning design. <laughs> I'm going to say something really bad. <laughs> the first thing that came to my mind is overrated. And I know that sounds really wrong, but what I mean is we sometimes get hung up in the design of beautifying mm-hmm. slides and choosing the best activity, whereas maybe we should spend more time in creating the environment afterwards that supports the application. <laughs> That's very, very well said. Thank you. Uh, learning culture. Learning culture, so the first thing comes to my mind, absolutely essential. Uh, that takes a lot of effort um, from everyone and not just L&D. Okay. Uh, transfer effectiveness? 12 levers. 12 levers. Ina. 
a lot right. of work. <laughs> <laughs> Great, you did very well. That's the end of the round, Melanie. <laughs> That's <laughs> <for> hard. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot going on, yeah. But yeah. yeah, I hope I didn't offend anyone with the overrated. But it really was. You said the first thing. It really was the first thing that came to my mind. <laughs> Yeah, that's fine. That's that's totally okay. And I'm sure there's a lot of learning in there too, uh, just hearing you through the through the rapid fire. So thanks for playing along, Melanie. Thank um, you, Subo. We are we are towards the end. Uh, any closing remarks or any any points uh, uh, that you might want to close with before we let you go? Yeah, maybe just you know uh, a thought that I think there's so many wonderful trainers, designers out there, and. I think most people who get in that job, we do it because we we want to support others in doing their job better. And if you actually shift your focus, you know, from purely focusing on that learning event and the design of that event to the learning culture and transfer, mm. even if it's hard in the beginning, because there will be uphill battles where you have to fight against resistance to get people on board, it is the most satisfying feeling when you actually get there. Right. And so don't let yourself being disencouraged, you know, when people push back and say, no, no, just design this two-day session. You know, have the courage to push back and ask a few questions because every single question you ask about the why, it will help you design something even more meaningful. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's, yeah, that's maybe a closing thought. That's wonderful. And I think well said. Um, it's uh, it's important to make sure that you're also looking at the end goal and then, you know, working backwards instead of going yeah. in the other direction. Um, so I think that's that's very well said. Uh, Melanie, it's, it's been a real pleasure having you. Thank you for spending the time. Thank you, Subu. I love the blend of concept and practice in Melanie's approach to developing a learning culture. What stood out for me in this conversation are the concepts of return on expectations versus just return on investments looking at learning beyond events and the example of the sales intervention gone wrong, especially if it doesn't tie back to other processes such as rewards. Until next time, I hope you think deeply about fostering a learning culture through learning effectiveness, transfer and expectations.